turn to your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, and um, our text is going to be verses 19 through 24, but we're going to start in verse 16 as a way of review, because you might recall we have not been in 1 John for a while. We took a break, and uh, Pastor uh, Pastor Mike preached for a few weeks while Pastor Tom and I were in India, and then we went right into Advent season. So we've had a kind of a, a long break of First John, but I'm excited to jump back in and continue our series through First John. First John chapter 3, I'm going to start reading in verse 16, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. Verse 16. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we should believe in the name of the Son, His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Father, right now we just ask that as we unpacked these words that are inspired through the writer John, I pray that, Father, you would illuminate our own hearts and our own eyes and give us a, a, a mind and a heart that is not only able to understand, but a, a mind and a heart that is willing to receive and to follow through. And I just pray that, Father, as a result of our time here this morning, that we would be reassured of things that matter of first importance. And I pray that, Father, that we would walk away not with doubt or uncertainty, but with newfound hope and assurance that we are, in fact, children of the King. May that be true of each and every one of us in here, Father, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reminded of this yesterday when my wife and I went to the grocery store, but a, a, probably a broader example of this is uh, when you have the opportunity to go to the airport. An airport is like a hub of lots of observations, right? When you go to the airport, and Pastor Tom and I, you know, we get to go on our, our mission trips together, uh, the, the airport is a hub in which, like, the world comes together. It's a, it's a hub in which it's like a, a mini global uh, representation. There's people from all walks of life, from m- so many different countries, from all kinds of demographics, and, uh, and we're all kind of in this one place at one time, and everybody's kind of in transit trying to get to another place. 
And, uh, you know, when, when, when you have time to kind of sit waiting for your next flight or your first flight, you make all sorts of observations, right? You, you see someone who's frantically trying to get through the TSA line, and, uh, and their plane is already boarding. And you know the, the stress that, that can induce in somebody, like my plane's boarding and I'm still stuck an hour behind this line. Or you see people that are, uh, they look like they've been living at the airport for a very long time, right? They're like, huh, you must make a habit of this. Um, or you see people that uh, are just loving life. They're sitting at a restaurant, they're laughing it up, they're just kind of carefree, uh, no worry in the world. But one observation that seems to be consistently uh, observed, at least in my mind, is this, is that when you get to your gate, there's a, a distinct contrast between someone who has their ticket in hand and with somebody who is on what we call standby. You know standby, right? Standby means that I might get on that plane, but I'm not yet certain that that plane is going to be for me. I might have to wait for another flight. Because you see, those with confirmed tickets are usually reading something. They're, they're vegging. They're, they're looking at their phone. They're relaxing, maybe over a meal. They might even be taking a nap. There's no worry because they're sitting there. Everything's been done. Tickets in hand. They're just waiting for the call to get in the seat that is already confirmed to them. Yet those who are on standby are usually swarming the ticket counter. And uh, not only swarming the ticket counter, but they might be pacing back and forth they might, be, uh, you might be, they might be talking in an elevated, raised voice, and you can see the disgust or you can see the stress that is on their face. What's the difference? Those with a ticket in hand have no worry. They're at peace. My seat is already there, unless you fly Southwest Airlines, of course. <laughs> then that's a whole other story. But... Usually, the way that we're supposed to work is that those with a ticket have a seat already confirmed to them, and those who are on standby have no assurance if their name will be called. They're always in a state of uncertainty. I think there's a similar correlation when it comes to our eternal salvation. You see, those who know that they are saved to eternal life have a peace about them and a settledness in their soul that it's well with my soul. I really have nothing to worry about. And yet those who are still uncertain of their salvation or are, are experiencing a season of doubt about their eternal security before God, there's, a, there's always going to be a degree of unsettledness and anxiety in their life. And you see, one of the themes that we've talked about long ago and that's kind of resurfacing again in John's first letter here to the churches is that he, he desires that these believers in Jesus Christ would be assured of their salvation. In other words, John wants them to know without any doubt and with absolute certainty that they are, in fact, children of the King. And the reason for that is because God wants you to know that you are assured that there's a confidence, and there's a, a settled confidence in your life that you are, in fact, a follower of Jesus Christ, that you belong to Him, that your salvation is secure. 
You see, in contrast to every other religion or faith system in the world, there's always a degree of uncertainty that exists uh, with whatever perspective they have on life after death. But the Bible teaches that we can know for certain that we are saved. And yet, as much as the Bible teaches us that we can know that we can be uh, assured of our salvation, the fact is sometimes we don't feel like it. Sometimes we doubt our salvation. Sometimes I think it's normal for all professing believers to to experience what we call a crisis of faith, to experience moments of doubt in our salvation. And that could be attributed to a variety of reasons, right? Perhaps sometimes we just we, we, we feel or we doubt our faith because of a pattern of sin in our life. Or, or we might doubt our faith because we compare ourselves to really spiritual people, right? I'm not like them, so, man, I just kind of wonder where I stand with God. Or we might doubt our faith because we, we are ignorant of the, of the Bible's promises to us, of God's promises to us. Sometimes we doubt because the enemy plants these seeds of doubt in our minds that make us wonder or question Christ's finished work on our behalf. Whatever the reason, I'm sure that all of us in here have had these moments or times in our life in which we've asked this question, am am I really saved? Does God really love me? Does God still love me? Is He angry at me? disappointed in me? What assurance can I look to to really know that I am in fact a child of God? By the way, a little side note to these questions. It's not wrong to ask these questions. It's good to ask questions such as these. It's always good to ask questions of eternal importance. So it's not wrong to ask these questions, but, it, but the peace that we long for and the assurance that you long for can only be experienced when you resolve these questions of eternal importance biblically. I don't know if you recall or not. You probably don't because I can hardly remember my sermons after a couple of weeks. I probably won't remember this one tomorrow. But when we started our Advent series, the first theme was a theme of hope. God with us brings hope. And one of the points I made in that sermon was this, that hope is based on God's Word to us, not our feelings within us. The hope that we, the confident assurance that you and I can experience in this life cannot be determined or dependent upon our feelings because our feelings are fickle. They, They ebb and flow. They tell us something's going on. We just don't always know what is going on. So therefore, our dependence and our assurance must be based on and founded in God's Word to us. And so John the Apostle offers encouragement for those times in which we too experience moments or, or seasons of doubt about our salvation. In fact, he offers evidence of faith so that disciples of Jesus will know for certain. And he even uses this phrase over and over again, this is how we know. He'll keep repeating this, this is how we know. 
And while there are some professing Christians that need more of a spiritual kick in the rear, even in here, and while there are some who actually think they are saved and are actually not saved at all, which is probably true in here as well, the people that John is addressing specifically are those who are genuinely saved but struggle with doubt. They struggle with a salvation confidence. And so John encourages these believers in this way, and this is kind of the outline of our sermon here that we're going to kind of unpack here. He gives four evidences or four reasons for salvation assurance, and then he tells them a profound benefit that comes when we come back to this place of salvation assurance. So let's unpack this here together, and uh, I hope this is working here. The first evidence of salvation assurance is that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we ask the question, how do I know that I'm saved? Well, John says, because you love the brother and you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verse 19 of 1 John chapter 3. John says this, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. Again, this phrase, by this, is referring back to a point that John has just made in the previous verses, and Pastor Mike preached on this back in November. And the point that John is making is is he's talking about the love that exists in the body of Christ. In other words, all true believers in Jesus Christ, the way in which they know or there's there's a genuine manifestation of their faith and the way that faith is manifested, it is by the love that they share and offer sacrificially to brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verse 14, for example. We know that we have passed out of death into life Why? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Now, what kind of love is this that we're talking about? Again, we we can use love very flippantly, right? We can use love very just kind of casually, or we might have a a subjective understanding of what love is, but the kind of love that John is referencing over and again, both in his gospel as well as his letters, is what is called agape love, right? It's not phileo love. It's not eros love. it's, it's, It's an agape love, and agape love is unconditional love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love, it's a, it's a love that is more concerned about the well-being of others before oneself. It is a love that is born out of choice and will rather than emotions and feelings. It is a love that, says, that is a commitment and a sacrifice for another person without any expectation of return. It's a love that is given even though it may not be given in return. And so as John points out in this passage here, this love is not limited to mere words, but it is always demonstrated practically. He says, in deed and in truth. I love what Paul says in Romans 5, 8. 
as a way of example. He says, but God shows His love. He doesn't just say He loves. God shows and demonstrates His love in that while we were still sinners, rebellious, dead in our sin, lost, completely helpless, in that place, God showed His love by sending His Son to die. Christ died for us. Amen. The point is this, love for one another, especially the household of faith, is one of the evidence that can reassure our hearts that we are, in fact, children of God. And so it sort of begs the question for us to evaluate and assess personally, do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? And you could almost even add another question. Is there somebody in, my, in the church, the church of Christ, that I struggle to love as God has loved me? A second evidence for salvation, assurance, is that we believe rightly about Jesus Christ that we believe rightly about Jesus Christ. Look at verse 23 with me. And this is His commandment. We must believe in the name of the, His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. Now, we've already discussed this point, but it's obviously been a while. But we discussed this point at the very beginning of our series through First John, and we learned the importance of believing rightly about Jesus. In other words, it's not enough, it's not sufficient to just have a, to know that Jesus existed, that he was a historical figure. It's not just enough to know that he did some really nice things, had some great teachings, even apparently had some miracles. Yes, all those things are true, but we must believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In other words, we must believe what God says about his Son, that's what it means to believe rightly about Jesus. And so when John talks about you must believe in the name of Jesus, that phrase believe in the name of Jesus means to trust in all that that name implies. Meaning, it means to confess that Jesus is God. It means to acknowledge that Jesus is our Savior and only hope for salvation. It means to, to surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It means to obey the commands of Jesus. You see, the, this understanding of Christian belief pushes back on the idea that I can believe in Jesus but not really do what he says. That's not belief. Belief is shown by one's response. By one's obedience. Talk is cheap, but our actions communicate what we really believe. Verse 24 says, Those who obey God's commands remain in fellowship with Him and He with them. So another question that we would do well to ask, ruminate on, think about, answer honestly, is do I believe rightly about Jesus? Do I believe the Jesus that is depicted and described in, in Scripture? Do I believe in a Jesus that is self-serving, the Jesus in my own making, or do I believe in the Jesus that is, that is, on, that is displayed on the pages of Scripture? 
And of course, the second question follows, if I believe rightly about Jesus, does that right belief about Jesus manifest itself in a loving, sacrificial action toward brothers and sisters in Christ? I love what Warren Wiersbe says in his commentary. He says, faith toward God and love toward man sum up a Christian's obligations. Faith towards God, love towards our fellow man sum up our Christian obligation. Do I love the brethren? Do I believe rightly about Jesus? But there's a third evidence of salvation, assurance, and that is that God knows us better than we know ourselves. Look at verse 20 with me. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. The point that John is is raising here is that we must reassure ourselves not by our judgment of ourselves, but by God's judgment of us. We don't reassure ourselves by, God's, by our judgment of ourselves because, again, that is very fickle. It ebbs and flows depending on how I feel and what I ate. We must judge ourselves by what God says about us. Because God's judgment of us is trustworthy, our judgment of ourselves is not always trustworthy. And yes, we know that God has given us a conscience. We see that throughout the pages of Scripture as well. God has given us this innate conscience, this consciousness to help us live our lives and to live a life that is pleasing to Him. That, that, that God-given conscience that we've talked about uh, before, if you've been with us for a while, it's like a sensor on a car, or it's like pain, the pain receptors in your body. They tell us what's going on on the inside, and they especially tell us if there's something that's not quite right. God has given us a conscience so that we would avoid the spiritual dangers in life and pursue those things that are pleasing to Him. And yes, we can choose to ignore it, or we can choose to pay attention to it and reap the benefit as such. But even though we have a conscience that is given to us by God to help guide us, direct us, protect us, pursue the things that are right, our conscience is not infallible, meaning it's not always accurate. You can't rely upon it 100% of the time. Because sometimes we can feel a sense of guilt and not really even know why. Sometimes we can feel badly and not really know why. Sometimes we can lack confidence in God's acceptance of us, but really have no good reason for thinking this way. Perhaps this is where some of you are this morning. If you were honest with yourself, you wonder, can I really confidently say, I'm good with God? Or maybe there's a little seed of like, I, I struggle with that. I don't know. Well, John tells us that when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. In other words, when your heart hurts and when your conscience condemns you, The response isn't to look within, it is to look to God. 
It's to look to God, look to Jesus Christ, look to the gospel of Jesus. Remember who you are in Jesus Christ, because by remembering who you are in Christ, it ushers in a renewed confidence before God. What does Paul say in Romans 8.1? By the way, if you have never memorized this, please let this stick in your heart and mind. Romans 8.1, so now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let that sink in. There is no condemnation. There is no guilt. There is no lack or need to wonder if God loves you or accepts you if you are in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. You are free and innocent. It's what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We are celebrating the finished work of Jesus Christ. Not the uncompleted work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me take it one step further, in fact. Not only is there no condemnation toward you, and if God does not condemn you, then who can condemn you, right? Who can bring any charge against you, right? But listen to this. Right now, at this very moment, Jesus Christ is interceding for you on your behalf with God the Father. Isn't that crazy? Right now, Jesus is interceding for you with God the Father on your behalf. This is what Paul says in Romans 8.34. He says, who is to condemn? Well, it's a rhetorical question. Nobody. If God himself cannot bring a charge against you, then nobody can. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Dane Ortland writes in his book, Deeper, and Abby and I have started this as a, a morning devotional. He says, Jesus is not bored in heaven. He's not biding his time. He's not going, hey, I go to prepare a place for you, and I'm like, oh, when, do I, when should I come back to earth? He's not sitting passively by doing nothing. He's not bored. Dane goes on to say, he is fully engaged on our behalf. As engaged as ever he was on earth. Why? Because we keep on sinning as sinners. Because we have not yet arrived. He says he always lives to make intercession. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? That Jesus right now is your advocate to the Father. And he's doing it, the word there is not that he has done it every once in a while or only when you sin. He's in a continual state of intercession until he returns one day to take us home. That's an appropriate place for hallelujah, by the way. That's not for me. That's because Jesus made that possible. He's the one doing that on our behalf. The point I'm getting at, brothers and sisters, is this. God is the final judge. Not your conscience. Not your feelings. Not even the judgment of others. God. And Jesus is interceding for you right now, this day, this moment, until he returns to take you home. Let me just say this. 
even when you are in the practice of sinning, God, Jesus Christ, is interceding to God the Father. It's incredible. It's amazing. I'm so thankful. I hope you're thankful, and I hope that just sinks in to your hearts. I hope that reassures your hearts that Jesus is loving you by being your greatest advocate. There's one more evidence of salvation, and that is this. It's the, it's the Holy Spirit that indwells us. This is a whole series in and of itself, so I won't go into exhaustive detail here, but verse 24, the second part says, we know that He lives in us because the Spirit He gave us lives in us. The point is that the Holy Spirit acts as a sort of internal witness that we, in fact, belong to God. The Holy Spirit brings a renewed confidence of our salvation by manifesting Himself in our lives in the most objective of ways. In other words, it's the Spirit who convinces us that Jesus Christ is the Christ and the Messiah and the Anointed One from God. It's a spirit that compels us to live righteously. It's a spirit that convicts us of sin and prompts us to repentance. It's a spirit that empowers us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. The point is that when our heart condemns us and we feel uncertain about where we stand with God, we look to the internal evidence of the spirits working in our lives. And let me just say this, the very fact that you might have any concern whatsoever about your eternal state with God is evidence that the spirit is working in your heart. The fact that you care about your salvation and and, and it causes a concern is evidence of the Spirit, and it's an invitation to pursue Christ more fully. So there you have it. According to John's letter, four reasons or four evidences, according to John, for reassurance of divine acceptance. Agape toward the brethren. Right belief about Jesus, resting in God's omniscient knowledge of us and Christ's intercession for us, and the internal witness that the Holy Spirit gives us. You see, when we come into this place of reassurance, there's a profound benefit that comes that, that, that is quick on the heels of that place of reassurance, and that is this. We have an unwavering belief that God not only hears your prayers, He not only hears your petitions, your requests, but He gives you what you ask for. The promise is that He gives you what you ask for. You see, there's a remarkable contrast, brothers and sisters. There's a remarkable contrast between a person who loves God and, and knows they are loved by God than with a person who is always doubting God's love for them. And see, that contrasting difference in how a per- is really manifested in how a person prays, specifically in the boldness in which they pray and the expectation that God will give you what you ask for. I mean, look at the verses that, in verses 21 and 22. Dear friends, if we don't feel guilty, we can come to God with bold confidence. I like the, 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 the uh, 
kind of the, the exclamation mark that's given to that confidence. It's not just a casual confidence. It's a bold confidence. And we will receive from Him whatever we ask because we obey Him and do things, do the things that please Him. The point that John is getting at is that when we are no longer in a place in where our heart condemns us, then we relate to God, especially in our prayer, with kind of an uninhibited boldness. Not an irreverent boldness, but a boldness that is motivated out of overwhelming awareness of God's love for you. A boldness that stems from the belief that our daddy in heaven loves to give us good things. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, classically known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, keep on asking. This is the New Living Translation. Keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? If, you ask, if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you, sinful people, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? You see, the point, brothers and sisters, is that God wants to bless you. He desires, He, want, he, he, he loves to give you good things. He, he desires to give you what you ask for. As one commentator says, if it is big enough concern to you, it is a big enough concern to God. Now, of course, there's a condition to this invitation. This condition is, that is attached to this request and God's provision is found in verse 22. We will receive, that is a promise, we will receive whatever we ask Here's the condition. Because we obey Him and do the things that please Him. You see, when our lives are marked by a pattern of obedience, and by the way, when I say a pattern of obedience, I'm not talking about perfect obedience because that only belongs to Jesus Christ. He was the only one who manifested perfect obedience. But when our lives are marked by a pattern of obedience... And because we seek to live our lives in such a way that pleases the Father, then we don't need to worry about asking things that seem kind of ridiculous or even honestly seem to, only, to really benefit us because you are already living to please the Father. As one commentator said, the obedience of faith opens the ears of God. The obedience of faith opens the ears of God. As Charles Spurgeon said it well. He said, the man of obedience is the man whom God will hear because his obedient heart leads him to pray humbly and with submission. It's as if this man prays like an oracle. His prayers are like prophecies, and so he gets what he asks for because they're all in accordance to the will of God. 
what John is inviting us to when we come into this place of reassurance before God is this. We can ask anything with the expectation that God will give us what we ask for. It's really saying if it's on our heart, ask away. If it's important to you, ask away. If it's something that you like, ask away. If you're aware of sin in your life, repent of your sin, return back in fellowship with God and continue to ask away because God loves to give you good things. Now, if I were to close the sermon at this point, I think I'd be raising a lot of questions. Because you might be asking this or responding in this way. Aaron, I've asked God for many things. And he did not give me what I asked for. And Aaron, I'm unaware of any blatant disobedience in my life. And and as far as I can tell, I'm living faithfully for God and doing what he's asked me to do. But I've asked God for years for this one thing. And he still hasn't given it to me. So how do I look at Matthew 7? And how do I look at 1 John 3? Yeah, Matthew 7. How do I look at those verses and other verses like it? And yet, when I look at my life, guess what? There's no connection. I'm promised that God will give me good things because he's a good daddy and he loves to give me things better than even a wicked person give me. But I have yet to receive anything I've asked for or this one thing that's really important to me. Well, let me say this in response. First of all, Matthew's heaven invites us to keep on asking. It doesn't say ask one and done and then wait patiently. It says to keep on asking. Don't stop asking. We really have this invitation to follow the example of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18. The persistent, that parable, the persistent widow is about a wicked master that eventually grants the request of this widow, not because he's a good master, but because he's a wicked one, but is tired of her persistence, and she, he gives her what she is asking for. And the whole contrast is, using one extreme example to another, we see that Jesus is saying, how much more, if this wicked master will give something to someone who's persistent, how much more will a good perfect heavenly Father give you what you ask for. In other words, we have this grand invitation by God himself. He's saying, I want you to ask like a child. I have six children, and they love to ask for lots of things. Most of you have children, and you know the way in which children ask, right? They're not just coming up Especially if they know there's a loving relationship where, you know, if, it, if there's not a loving relationship, then it's like you come in timidly, right? And it's like you, you almost come in as it's like, I don't know if I'm really accepted or not. We, we call it the orphan mindset, right? And yet when you understand who God is and how much he loves you and loves to lavish you with good things and loves to bless you, you come in and you go, God, I want this. And much like little Olivia, she's like, please. Daddy. Right? Please. And I'm a softie. It's, it's easy to give in. 
when she does that little kind of tilt of the head. Please, Daddy. Is it any different with our Father? You see, it's important that we think rightly about our Father in heaven, that we have a biblical understanding about our Father in heaven because we have this Father in heaven who's just like, I love you. I love you. I want to be with you. I want to bless you. I want to knock your socks off on how much I bless you. Ask away and keep asking. Don't stop asking. But the second thing I would also say is that sometimes I just don't know why God doesn't give us our requests, even though we may have been persistent and living a life that is marked by obedience and faithfulness. You know, without dismissing the pain of this question as if we just chalk it up to God's sovereignty and his providence, the fact is sometimes we just don't know why God does the things that he does. I think there always needs to be a degree of mystery when it comes to God. After all, he's infinite and I'm not. He knows everything and I don't. But the one thing we do know for certain is that he loves us and he loves you more than you could ever imagine. And our greatest need in life is not that God must give us whatever we ask because, by the way, God doesn't owe us anything. No, our greatest need in life is to realize how much he loves you and therefore accepts you. And for your heart and your soul to rest in that quality of eternal intimacy. A third and final thing I'd like to say before I close is that it's possible that God withholds giving your requests or granting your request because he's actually growing your intimacy with him through your waiting. You see, God's number one goal for you is not that you would be Santa and he grants everything on your wish list. No, his number one goal for you is to transform you and for you to come into this place of utter intimacy before him. And sometimes he doesn't give us what we ask for, at least not right away, at least not yet, because he's growing our intimacy with him through our waiting and through our persistence in asking I mean, when you observe how Jesus interacted with his father, I mean, Jesus had no doubt and with absolute certainty. He's like, he even prays in John 11 when he gets ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, right? He says, Father, I thank you that you always hear me. Not sometimes. I thank you that you always hear me and that you give me what I ask for. And the reason why we know that is because Jesus spent a lot of time in the wilderness, a lot of time alone with his father, fostering that intimacy. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He says, God answered Jesus and granted his requests. And then here's the invitation. And the nearer that we approximate to God, in the same way we can be certain that our request will be granted. The point is, our prayers are answered more and more as our intimacy with the Father grows more and more. 
Our prayers are answered more and more as our intimacy with the Father grows more and more. So my invitation, John's invitation, God's invitation is this. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Remain faithful. Trust that your God is very much at work in your life through your waiting and through your persistence. Do not be discouraged. Do not grow faint-hearted. Do not give up. Your Father loves you. He loves you more than you can ever imagine. Rest in his love for you. Do you love the brethren? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? And even if your heart does condemn you, remember that God is greater than your heart. He wants you to know without any doubt that you are his child. And from that place of reassurance, he wants you to come as a child and ask him anything and watch how he blesses you richly. Thank you.